Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. On this week's show, posting April 10th, 2015, we'll be speaking with Muslim scholar Ziyuddin Sadar about the future of Islam and Islam in our future, the topic of a conversation with him in the journal's new spring issue. We'll also point out other top stories in the New World Policy Journal. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports News Service. Now that the framework nuclear agreement with Iran has been made, the White House is defending it against Republicans who say it's a bad deal. The conservative theme is that the agreement is bad for America's top ally in the Middle East, Israel. Tom Cotton, the junior Republican senator from Arkansas, who authored a recent letter to Tehran that was signed by 46 colleagues, says he'll do whatever he can to shoot down the agreement. Meantime, defenders point out steep Iranian concessions on everything from allowable enrichment levels of uranium to the more benign conversion of the Iraq reactor and the once secret site at Fordo. As part of his defense of the agreement, President Obama is stressing his commitment to the security of Israel. He spoke with Tom Friedman of the New York Times. Our defense of Israel is unshakable. I would consider it a failure on my part, a fundamental failure of my presidency, if on my watch or as a consequence of work that I've done, Israel was rendered more vulnerable. Not just a strategic failure. And I I think that's not just a strategic failure. I think that would be a moral failure. The president is also focusing on problems in America's backyard. He's attending this weekend's Summit of the Americas in Panama. It's expected that he'll chat with Cuba's Raul Castro, their first meeting since Obama moved to normalize relations between Washington and Havana. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. My understanding of Islam has certainly transformed in the last 30 years. Unfortunately, most of the things that I've learned, I, I think I've learned that I, we need to discard them and move forward to something new. Ziad and Sardar on BBC Radio 3. Writer and cultural critic Sadar is director of the Center for Post-Normal Policy and Future Studies at East West University, Chicago, and editor of the quarterly Critical Muslim. Born in Pakistan, educated in London, and dubbed one of Great Britain's top public intellectuals, he's author of over 50 books and cares greatly about the future of Islam and Islam's role in a broader future. Sadar talked about those issues with World Policy Journal editor and publisher David Andelman and managing editor Jaffa Frederick for the article Faith and Hope in the journal's spring issue, and I talked later with him about that conversation for this podcast. Professor Sadar, welcome to World Policy on Air. It's a pleasure to be with you. Let's start with some definitions. First, what you call post-normal times. Well, we seem to be in a period when old paradigms are breaking down. For example, uh, economy doesn't make sense. Uh, Climate change has uh, kind of more or less reconfigured the world. Uh, Lots of things are changing, and we seem to be moving uh, from the old established paradigms. But we haven't actually arrived at new paradigms uh, at all. So post-normal times is the times when a great deal of what we regarded as normal does not seem to be, wo- to be working, 
And so therefore it's an in-between period where we are moving from one uh, uh, kind of ac accepted and conventional normality into another uh, normality which hasn't quite arrived yet. The, the, the post-novel times has, uh, have, have two or three characteristics. One is that most of the problems we face nowadays are very complex. I mean, there's nothing simple about, for example, dealing with the financial problems or, or dealing with climate change or, or dealing with the, the spread of uh, epidemics like the one we uh, uh, experienced recently, the Ebola crisis in, in Africa. Uh, so we are facing complex problems, which uh, also have a different scale. The scale is now global. Almost all of our problems are global in, in, in nature. And we are facing this complexity and, and scale in a period of accelerating change. So when you have a great deal of complexity, a great deal of change, and things are networked, you get positive feedback. And when we have positive feedback in in a situation like that, you have chaotic behavior. So we are almost on the verge of chaos. I mean, you know, if you, if you just look back at the last 10 years, a number of times we came uh, towards an economic collapse, not just once or twice, not just 2008, but before that in 2005 and so on and so forth. So we seem to be kind of moving from chaotic uh, behavior to chaotic behavior. We are always on the, on the edge of chaos. So complexity and chaos are important components of post-normal times. And the third component of post-normal times is contradictions. We seem to face lots of different contradictions. Some of these, of course, come up in conflicts. Conflicts always have two different uh, opposing points, uh, points of view which have to be reconciled. And the things about contradiction is that contradictions cannot be resolved because they are logical inconsistencies. They have to be transcended. And therefore, we have to learn how to cope with, with contradictions and, and transcend them. So there are three basic components to post-normal times, complexity, chaos, and contradictions. You also coined the term Islamic futures, though you insist you don't foresee a new Islamic era replacing what many in the West consider the Christian era. So what do you mean? Well, uh, uh, what I actually mean is that the communities uh, around the globe, um, uh, you know, ethnic communities, religious communities, should actually participate in shaping their own future. So by Islamic futures, what I'm emphasizing is that Muslim communities, should, instead of just, just kind of blaming the West or feeling uh, victimized, they should proactively participate in shaping their own positive and viable futures. And, and this, of course, I mean, I'm just, I mean, the, the, the term Islamic futures refers to Islamic communities, but you could have, you could have, have, have futures of any community, in a sense. You know, you could have American futures, which will be kind of multiple. You could have uh, British futures. And the, the emphasis on futures in the sense that there's not only one future, but a multiple of uh, futures. Uh, and therefore, we have to negotiate what would, and synthesize what would be, a, what would be viable futures for all of us. So that's the kind of the emphasis is on plurality and on, on proactively engaging in doing something positive about the future rather than simply sitting back and blaming everybody else. For all the attention to Islamic extremism, the rise of al-Qaeda and its offshoots, uh, the bloody spread of a self-dubbed Islamic state, you call the phenomenon superfluous. How can that be? Well, it is superfluous because it doesn't have any content. You cannot build a state um, 
simply on slogans or on ideas which were developed in the 8th and 9th century, uh, which is where they actually belong. Uh, if you go back to earlier on, I said complexity is a very important dimension of post-normal times. Now, governing a state is a very complex phenomenon in contemporary times. This is why we are having so many problems with governance. I mean, in Britain, for example, we are facing serious problems with governance. America has serious problems with governance. I mean, first time in history, the American government shut down a few years ago. We've never heard, uh, heard that before, that governments can actually shut down. It's because there are too many contradictions in the system, there's too much complexity, uh, and, and lots of you know, chaotic behavior. A state like the Islamic State, the so-called Islamic State, or ISIS, as some people call it, uh, is essentially based on slogans. It's based on simplistic notions uh, of a kind of globalized Islam and, and, and so on and so forth. And essentially, it reduces Muslims to kind of automata, people who simply do certain things and do not certain things. It's not a positive way of engaging with the world. And therefore, it has the seeds of its own destruction. So it's superfluous in the sense that it's not going to last very, very long. Extremism never actually really creates anything positive and therefore collapses eventually. Uh, you've talked about pluralism, different approaches to pluralism. You say the biggest problem with Islam is contesting interpretations of Sharia law, which is the, the code by which the Islamic State lives. Uh, and you say it's generally misunderstood in the first place. Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, the kind of Sharia that Islamic State uh, wants to implement is essentially a, a Sharia that was developed in the 9th century. Now, if you implement ideas and thought and framework that were developed in the 9th century, you should not be surprised uh, that you create the conditions of the 9th century. That's one more reason why extremists like the, the Islamic State people uh, are superfluous and have no real role to play in, 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 mo in the modern world except the role of destruction, in a sense. Now, most people think that the Sharia is divine. This is a very common belief among, um, among Muslims. But the truth is that the Sharia is actually, was actually socially constructed in history in, during the Abbasid period in the 8th and, 8th and 9th century. It is a human construction. Um, any interpretation of a divine text can only be an interpretation and can only be a human interpretation. And as such, uh, it's subject to change. Uh, it's, 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 it's fallible. Uh, there is, uh, I mean, in the case of Sharia, there are hardly anything kind of really really divine in it. For example, uh, the Quran, which is what the Muslims believe is the word of God, says there is no compulsion in religion, uh, while the Sharia says kill the apostate. Uh, the Quran says there is no difference between believing men and believing women. The Sharia says lock the women up uh, in, in the kitchen and, and, and shroud them you know, in, in, in parda. So there are big contradictions between the Sharia and what the Quran actually says. Um, and these contradictions have risen because the, the Quran has been interpreted in history by, by men, and it has been interpreted in, in, in a history that is over 1,000 year, years, years old. So in that sense, uh, we need to develop a new and fresh understanding of the, of the Sharia. Uh, and the kind of interpretations of Sharia that we see uh, in, the, in the Muslim world, not just in the Islamic State, but also in places like Saudi Arabia, or the Taliban of Afghanistan has actually no place 
in, in the 21st century. All it does is take, take us back to the 9th century. Morocco has made notable progress in reforming its understanding of Sharia. In what ways? Morocco has kind of focused on the personal aspects of the Sharia and kind of reinterpreted it. But it has reinterpreted it in a very precise manner in the, in the sense that it, it has reinterpreted it by giving it references from Quranic verses and teachings, teachings of the Prophet. So this new Sharia is just as authentic as the classical Sharia because it is based on the same sources. So one of the first things it does, for example, is that the classical Sharia tells us that the men are the, are, are the leader in a, in a, in a, in a family uh, framework. The, the new Moroccan Sharia says no men and, and, and women are equal. Uh, the men uh, cannot divorce unilaterally, but in fact they have to go to a court and seek a proper injunction and give reasons. And the women have the right to divorce as much as the men have the right to divorce. The women have right to alimony. The classical Sharia automatically gives children to the father, but the new Sharia says no, uh, we need to find out who will be the best person to look after the children and gives equal responsibility to, to, to men and women. So lots of the, of the classical Sharia uh, has been changed. A great deal from the classical Sharia has been changed in the new personal law in, in Morocco. They call it the Mardawana. It is the Pacific term for the personal aspects uh, of the Sharia. And to my mind, it's, it's a very advanced interpretation. It, it really is genuine, uh, brings in genuine equality, uh, gender equality, and promotes women's rights quite kind of aggressively. You say it's a responsibility of all Muslim leaders, and really leaders of all religions and ideologies, to transcend the absolutes they honor, or at least honor the absolutes of others. Uh, but you see a catch-22, especially for Muslim yes. leaders, if they open debate. Yes, yes, there, 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 there is absolutely a, a, a catch-22 here. I mean, for example, if I, my, if I believe that my religion is the absolute truth, then it becomes a kind of a duty for, for me to kind of try and at least preach and perpetuate my, my truth. But what happens in certain cases, uh, especially with people with closed minds, that they think it's not just that their religion is the absolute truth, that they know the truth, and also they own the truth, and therefore it is incumbent on them to impose this truth on others. And I think this is a fundamental problem with all monotheistic faiths. Right. Somehow we need to, be, to learn to be more ecumenical uh, and appreciate that other people have their absolutes as well, in a sense. So we, we need to kind of move away from this notion of, of Platonic truth and say, this truth is, is, is my truth, it matters to me. But there are other people who have their own truth and it matters to them as, what, as much as my truth matters to me. And therefore, there has to be kind of live and let live uh, kind of uh, uh, idea. Uh, and unless, I think this is perhaps uh, one of the main kind of problem of monotheistic faiths that they have to resolve, this idea of, of kind of absolute truth, that salvation, for example, only can be had through Jesus Christ, or that you know, redemption can only be had if you kind of submit to Islam. Uh, uh, and we need to kind of open up and say, no, there are other uh, uh, ways to redemption. There are other ways to salvation. And these ways are just as valid as my way. 
Well, you've shown us that Morocco is an interesting and important example, but how does the larger Islam move forward in the battle or evolution of ideas and ideology? And at what risk of ever more violence from those who fear change or condemn it as heresy? Yeah, I think this is the, one of the main problems is the fear of change. Uh, uh, the, I think many Muslim communities around the world have not learned to, uh, or appreciate the fact that change is the only thing out there. Change is the only constant. Everything changes, in a sense. Everything evolves. Uh, um, and unless the Muslim societies adjust to change, and of course one way of adjusting to change is to for reformulate the Sharia, as I have argued, rethink what uh, truth really means, uh, we are not going to go, go forward. And it also means that we need to bring criticism in, in a sense. Uh, criticism and self-criticism is an essential part of Islam, in, 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 in my view. There was a classical Islamic concept of, of, of misbah, which means criticism and self-criticism. So we need to bring in criticism into our religious ideas, in a sense. We can only move forward by critiquing what exists, and then rethinking what is really kind of the contemporary Islamic ethics that will take us forward, what it means to be a Muslim in the 21st century. We know what it means to be a Muslim in the 9th and 10th century, but we have not learned what it means to be Muslim in the 21st century. And that, I think, is the kind of major goal uh, uh, of, 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 of contemporary Islam. Now, in, in some cases, I think things are moving forward because our folk attention is so much focused on Islamic State and all the extremists uh, that are out there from, you know, from the Caliphate in Iraq and Syria to Boko Haram in Nigeria to the Taliban in Pakistan to the Shabab in, in Somalia. Uh, we have overlooked the fact that there are lots of very positive things that are going on in the Muslim world. For example, in Indonesia, they, they debated and discussed what is the, the kind of way of interpreting Islam's relationship to politics. And they came to the conclusion that, yes, Islam does suggest that Muslims should be involved in politics, but that doesn't mean that, that Muslims should be creating Islamic states. What it actually means is that Muslims should be creating civic societies. So, so Islam enters uh, politics through creating civic society and holding those in power to, to account. Uh, and in fact, the kind of the democratic, democratic setup they have developed in Indonesia is very innovative in, in, in many respects. It, 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 it brings in Islam, but it doesn't bring Islam at a state level. It brings Islam at a community level and, 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 and kind of encouraging people to get involved in politics by creating civic society. Uh, uh, I was in Pakistan uh, a couple of weeks ago, where I met hundreds and hundreds of young people who are becoming aware that, in fact, we need to rethink uh, all kind of conventional thought, you know, what is, what is Sharia, what is ethics uh, in contemporary times, what is a good education. So they are asking these kind of fundamental questions, which means they are rethinking. And I think once we reach a critical mass of young people and young scholars, then Islam will start to change itself. You concluded your conversation uh, for the World Policy Journal by saying we must learn to be human again. Do you really think we are less human today than in the past, from Cain and Abel through the Inquisition, pogroms, the Holocaust, African genocides, or has uh, I think we have of complexity? Course, of course, we have made we have made a great deal of uh, uh, moral progress. I mean, you know, it goes without 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 saying. Uh, but I think in, in somehow. Uh, 
we have learned, we have forgotten how to uh, adjust to difference, how to appreciate difference, difference to see difference as a as a good thing. Uh, uh, and because we we fear difference, we 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 tend to think that there is only one way to be human, our way, in a sense. And if you think that only your way of being human is is right and correct and should be imposed on on others, uh, then I think you are a truncated human being, in a sense. So we need to trans. I mean, that's one of the contradictions that I was talking about uh, uh, earlier on is that somehow we need to learn that there are different ways to be human. Uh, we really need to embrace plurality in, in, in appropriately and properly. The argue, what I'm arguing is that we, we need to look at other ways of being human as equally valid. Uh, so people, for example, who live in the Amazon forest, their way of life may be different from us, but it's not an inferior way of life. They have they have a right to live the way they want to live, you know. Uh, people in uh, in in kind of uh, uh, Middle East, for example, um, have a, their culture, their history, their legacies are just as important as European culture, European European legacy, and therefore they should be allowed they're allowed to live the way they want to live, in a sense. So I think what I'm arguing is that we need to appreciate that there is, there is more than one way to be human. And if we can do that, then we ourselves become truly human. Professor Sadar, thank you. Thank you very much, David. Ziad Sardar is director of the Center for Post-Normal Policy and Futures Studies at East-West University, Chicago. His books include Reading the Koran, Future, All That Matters, Desperately Seeking Paradise, Journeys of a Skeptical Muslim, and Mecca, the Sacred City. His conversation on faith and hope appears in the spring issue of World Policy Journal. Also featured in the new spring 2015 issue of World Policy Journal, you'll find articles on the new world of tax havens, on the new face of international financial fraud, and on AIDS in the Arab Spring. Plus, tune into next week's podcast as we talk with CIA veteran Jack Devine about how conventional wisdom can confound coping with the unknown. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor-publisher David Andelman, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, online news editor and podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern. <laughs>